everybody and welcome. Welcome to the Words, Women and Wisdom radio show streaming live from BBS in California and syndicating to over 100 stations globally, including iTunes and iHeart. And I'm happy today to be joined by a beautiful guest that I actually saw speak at a conference a couple of years ago now before we had the COVID, COVID impact of conferences at the Bell Let's Talk conference. And I was super impressed with her story and wanted to invite her to join me on the Words, Women and Wisdom radio show. So hello, Vanisha. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks. It's good to be here. It is good to be here. And how am I pronouncing your last name so I don't get it wrong? Uh, Bro. Bro. Okay, I would have pronounced it wrong. So even though it's spelled differently, you'll see in the show notes, um, it's bro. So thank you. If you haven't tuned in before, the Words, Women and Wisdom radio show is here to uplift the spirit of humanity. And I do that by showcasing amazing women who have typically risen, risen through some sort of tragedy to triumph and are now out there in the world doing amazing things. Many of them are speakers, authors and coaches. Many um, have their own mission inspired business or foundation and are impacting hundreds thousands or millions of lives and my role is to bring these beautiful women to the stage to help share their message and especially in Venetia's case as she just launched her book Ordinary Courage so we're going to talk about that today and the reason I do this work just because literally my voice was squashed. Um, at age 11, my dad came back from the World War II with a bullet in Dunkirk, and he literally drained the dignity right out of my mom, who was a professional woman. And literally, she lost her voice. She did not speak up. And he, he turned on me at age 11 as well. So now I use my voice to bring forth stories of hope inspiration and women who have literally been out in the world doing amazing things. So today my work as a coach and mentor expands to bring to light those women with high potential and bring them into the real world of monetized business. So here we are with Vanisha. So a little bit about Vanisha. Her entire family's life was changed forever when her oldest daughter disclosed that she'd been repeatedly sexually abused by her stepfather. This is going to be a really interesting story today. She is the founder and CEO of the national organization Terminator Foundation, love the name, which is a cutting edge approach to mental health opioid and addiction crisis. Now she spent two decades as a crusader for social justice issues concerning mental health, addiction, and domestic violence. Now she is an advocate and a speaker who's literally pushing the boundaries every day of vulnerability, of introspection, and everyday courage, while shifting the paradigm of judgment towards one of compassion. Now her personal story is powerful as you'll hear. It's one of domestic violence and addiction which is the motivating source behind her dream of breaking down any shame or stigma stigma around the mental health issues. And as she does this work today as the author of the, the newly released book Ordinary Courage and podcast host of the notable show Ordinary Courage which is found now in the top 100 relationship podcasts in Canada. She holds a Bachelor of Arts with honors in counseling and psychology, as well as being a certified life coach and triathlon coach training. Woo, interesting. Um, (laughs) Impact has been acknowledged by several awards already, including a recipient of the Universal Women's Network Difference Maker Award. I'm also a Universal Women's Network Women of Inspiration alumni. She has supported and advised various boards and currently serves on the board for the Reset Society, which I know um, as well, a supportive housing program for women and children exiting sexual exploitation and human trafficking. So I am thrilled that you're here today. So can you share a little bit, just to put things in context, more about this, this previous history growing up and how that shaped what's in your book and the work you do today? Um, Well, I guess, yeah, much like even what you shared, um, just, you know, with 
now using your voice uh, in retrospect to losing your voice. I think a lot of um, a lot of the times our our purpose comes from you know childhood and childhood issues and 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 things that we've seen experienced um, and really my story is no different uh, in that in that I grew up in a home, uh, a fairly violent home, uh, a lot of domestic violence, family violence, um, childhood sexual abuse. I was sexually abused uh, repeatedly uh, by several members uh, on my in my family. And so um, also with mental health, like my mom was diagnosed uh, schizophrenic uh, when I was a young girl. And so because I was the oldest uh, of three siblings, um, a lot of the responsibility fell on me as the eldest child to, you know, in the early stages of my mom's sickness to care for her and care for my siblings and at the same time manage the trauma. And we obviously we didn't talk like this back then you know what I mean we didn't talk about mental health the way we talk about it today or trauma or domestic violence or really any of these issues you just stayed silent that's what you did and and I didn't you know I didn't for a long time I hid from my story for a long time for years and years um, I didn't want anyone to know my story or where I came from or how I grew up or any of that. I just wanted, I wanted to be normal mm-hmm. and I wanted to, you know, like pretend like I came from the white, you know, the, the nice house with the white picket fence and, you know, the normal family, you know, on the normal street. And we almost kind of, in a sense, it almost felt like we grew up on the wrong side of the tracks uh, growing up. And um, and then I thought I had escaped all of that and escaped my childhood and everything. And, you know, um, I was married and uh, really thought that I, you know, that we had it all and uh, until we didn't. And that's when, yeah, my marriage and my life um, really just fell apart, um, horribly, drastically, painfully. Um, and it really was like these last 15 years, cause I've been, that happened now 15 years, almost 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been the, my journey in these last 15 years that I have really, really embraced everything that I've been through and where I can now really see how all the pieces fit and where they fit and how they fit and why they fit and and the purpose out of those now and so that is you know I was always for a long time I've been involved in a lot of these issues but I I really uh, wholeheartedly I don't hide from anything anymore. There's not one part of my story um, that is hidden anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that's been, you know, and I, I'm going to be 50 soon. And so it's, um, it's nice to be at this place right now where there's, um, there's nothing at all that I'm afraid of right yeah, now yeah. today. Yeah. Well, just to be writing a book um, that has the word courage in it, in itself, requires courage and you call it ordinary courage what I hear you sharing in your story that is not what I call ordinary absolutely not so was it um in the Calgary area like I'm in Calgary Alberta in Canada um for those listeners who are um listening in from other parts of the world were you raised and born was it the Calgary region no I I was actually well I was born in Kamloops, BC, British Columbia. Um, But I mostly grew up uh, way, way up north, like Dawson Creek, Fort St. John, BC, in that area. 
okay. uh, just because of the line of work that my father was in oil and gas and stuff like that, like welding. And so all the pipelines, he worked on the pipelines up there. Um, I didn't move to Calgary until 2000. And I moved here with my family, okay. uh, my husband and my family at that time. And so but th this is home now, like Calgary is home for me. It's home for all my kids. It's home for my grandkids. Like this is home. So. This is home. We found yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've been, as you can tell from my accent, I was born in London, England originally. Um, and Calgary has been my home now for oh, 40 ish years. <laughs> so yeah. it's a beautiful city at the base of the Rocky Mountains. If you haven't ever been here, I highly encourage a visit. We have our annual stampede every July, first week in July. And it's um, a, a powerful opportunity to really experience the Western hospitality um, linked in with our indigenous culture and also to really showcase some of the beautiful things that Calgary is known for. So um, I'm glad that you shared that little piece. Um, with this vivid and shocking reveal for you know what happened with your own personal life growing up you mentioned about your mom having schizophrenia your dad in oil and gas so was there anybody who was aware of what was happening to you and the sexual abuse um repeated sexual abuse history that was going on like was there anybody standing up for you like I don't know how you would have survived that as a teenager and especially keeping it hidden mm -hmm. yeah I um you know, like I mentioned, like, you know, I think back then in that generation, you know, we just like, I know for my parents, like they, and honestly, in, in like, both my parents came from similar upbringings okay. as well, right? And so there's just a lot of that generational, like that systemic trauma, right? Okay. Systemic addiction, systemic mental health, systemic child sexual abuse like that was that goes as far back as as I as I know as far back as I can remember and so okay you know I for me no there wasn't there wasn't anyone to tell I didn't feel like I could tell anyone and so the I know for me the sexual abuse started when I was seven mm. um and then just went right through till I was like 12 12 or so years old um, but some of my very first memories as a child are of domestic violence and, you know, having, because both my parents were alcoholics as well. And so our home life was like really chaotic and, and yeah. yeah and it just, and it, you know, I, I finally told someone by chance um, when I was about 12 years old and that's when things sort of started to shift a bit but I was very I, I honestly it's only the grace of God that I survived mm -hmm. um, because I you know I ended up you know self-harming at a young age I was suicidal at a young age but you still there was because it just was the time that we lived in you were you were looked upon as like you know what I mean there was something wrong with you not what has happened to you it was right. like what's wrong with you you yeah. know and so there was so much shame around all of those subjects right. so you I mean you just didn't want to be labeled as as that right and so yeah, yeah well, no, no teenager likes to be labeled as different for no. starters I think that that you know still carries on into you know teenagers yeah. in school today and I remember interviewing a couple of other guests who shared their stories. Um, Jennifer Menard Chan, um, who talked about, you know, literally having to pick up a knife to defend, you know, herself and her mom um, at one point with her um, abusive father. And then also Milan Rice, who I interviewed, who's a sexual assault survivor as well. And I think she was around seven, um, seven when she was also enticed by a neighbor um into his yard and again as she said you know she didn't she knew it was wrong what was happening but she didn't have the strength to mm -hmm. do anything about it she's a you know she's a small a small girl right so I am so grateful that now you are taking this work 
to the public to actually try to shift that stigma. Like when it's the adult, it can never be something that is excusable. Never, ever, ever. And that treatment of kids, whether they're male, female, um, however they represent, is just not acceptable, not acceptable. Even if there are mental health issues that are involved, um, how we can shift this and how we can change it is by telling these stories. So thank you for being bold enough to step into into that courage. So you mentioned that your oldest daughter also then was involved in this pattern um, that she'd been uh, repeatedly sexually abused by her stepfather. And yeah, vivid, shocking, revealing, raw, you know, this is what's part of what's in your book. Um, You know, a deeply intimate story of of your quest for survival in the face of unimaginable, um, unimaginable adversity, tragedy to triumph, truly a gift of hope, this book. And so what happened with, um, with how you were able to respond differently to your daughter's situation because of your own personal experience? What did you do or say, or how could you leverage that experience for her benefit? Um, that's, a, that's a bit of a loaded question. Mm. Um, just because, you know, um, so I have four children. And so my oldest daughter I had had from a previous marriage when I was really quite young, I was 18. And then when I married my second husband, who was Carissa's stepfather, um, him and I had three more children together. And, and then that's when, so she had met her stepfather when she was about two, two and a half. And so she knew him as like a father. Um, and so when her, when the abuse with her first started, she disclosed to me when she was seven and a half years old, that daddy, cause she called him daddy, um, okay. that, you know, daddy had touched her. And, and I was at that time, I was pregnant with my third child. I was I was uh, about seven or so months pregnant with my, with my third child, which was going to be a son. And um, so we, we were also, cause we're Christians. And so, you know, um, we were, you know, in the church, we attended church, like it was very much a part of our lives and things like that. And so um, I believed Carissa instantly. Like I knew, you know, but at the very same time, it was incredibly shocking to me. It was like, how could this have happened? You know what I mean? How could, how could this horrible, you know, curse or sin or this debit, you know, how could this have followed me into my marriage? Right. You know? And so we, <clears throat> you know, we went for counseling right away. I confronted Peter uh, he was very remorseful, very apologetic, um, all of those things. We went for counseling and, and you know, talked to the past, some pastors and stuff like that. And it was sort of agreed upon. And I talk about this in the book, um, that it was like a mistake. It was, a, it was a, you know, not going to happen again. It was something that just was like, you know, and... And so we, and I, and I wanted to believe it. Yeah. I wanted to believe it. I wanted to keep my family together. I loved my husband. I loved my family. I, I really just thought that there's no way this could be like an actual real issue. Like, you know, and even everything I thought I knew too, as well back then is so different than what I know today. Um, and have since learned. Um, and so we went about our lives and then it, it came up again um, when Carissa was 14. And, and again, I talk about that in the book and, you know, I, and at this point now in our lives, like now we have, you know, we have our, all of our four kids, we've built an incredible business 
Uh, we're self-employed entrepreneurs. Uh, we have a thriving company. Uh, we're very successful. Um, we were quite prominent in our community and in our church community. Um, you know, we were, you know, just at that time, we were, you know, planning a trip to Disneyland. Like it just, you know. The perfect life, right? Per- yeah, you know, <laughs> and and then I get the call from Carissa, you know, asking me to, if I can pick her up. And so I go and pick her up. And again, it she was like, you know, mommy, this is what happened last night. And, and then that's in that moment. And I, I talk about this in the book, but in that moment, I, there was so many feelings that happened for me because I, in that moment, I, I knew everything was over my whole life. Everything was over in that moment. I knew my words, everything I had promised my daughter. Um, I just felt like, I felt like my words were shit. Yep. My words had just meant nothing. Yep. I, I didn't even want to tell her it's going to be okay. I'm going to take care of it because I felt like I can't even say anything to her now because mm-hmm. my words have nothing. My words hold no power. Because these same words I had spoken to her seven years prior, right. and it had continued. Everything I had told her would not happen again, happened again. Everything I promised her, everything I guaranteed her, every it was all meant nothing. And, and then I personally also felt so betrayed. I felt, I felt like so betrayed by the people I had believed, by everything I had believed in. I felt betrayed by God. I felt betrayed, like everything, my, 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 everything I believed in, I was meant nothing. Hmm. And so that was, what did you do? Well, that's, that's when every, that's when everything really started to like, as much as everything turned around in that moment, everything also fell apart in that moment. Everything I thought I knew meant nothing. And so we pressed charges. So I pressed charges, uh, kicked him out of the house. Um, and it just, that's when the whole, you know, the criminal proceedings started, you know, our system is such a mess on so many levels. There was no support uh, for an issue like this. Um, there was no support groups. There was, I felt very much alone, very much isolated, uh, you know, and then I obviously was caught in my own shame, my own, I didn't want to tell anyone, like, how could this have happened to us? Yeah. How could this have happened? And so the criminal proceedings and all of that took, took just about two years. And then after that was all over, then that's when I finally had the headspace to, you know, file for divorce, start the divorce proceedings, things like that. Um, but it, that's when everything, you know, and that's where really these last, my work now, these last probably like a decade really um, to, has, it's just, it opened up my eyes on a whole other level. And just even looking back in my own childhood, my own, you know, the way that we as a society, you know, how we've 20 years ago, 30 years ago, what things looked like 40 years, what they've looked, even 10 years, what things have looked like. And just the work that needs to be done. You know, when we talk about systemic generational trauma, Mm -hmm. how do we fix that? How do we really fix that? And, and what is your answer, Benicia? My, my aunt, I honestly, all of this came back because that's when I realized, you know what, I'm, because now I have four adult children right now right. today. I have seven grandchildren. I don't want this to continue on. Right, I don't. Right. So the only way I realized, the only way I, the only conclusion I've come to, to fix this is I had to really look at myself like all the ugly truth all my own 
my own insecurities, my own, the reason why I stayed the first time in my marriage, you know what I mean? Why I didn't leave at seven, why I wanted to believe in every, like I had to, I pulled everything apart, mm-hmm. all my beliefs, all my, I pulled my faith apart. I pulled my own fears and insecurities apart, even going way back from when into my childhood, my right. own sexual abuse, my own addiction with alcohol. Like I pulled everything apart. What did just, you find at the right at the very, very center of all of that that was a starting point for hope? Yeah, absolutely. I I I really and now even, you know, I really teach my kids today and even because both my daughters are now mothers, right? They have children of their own. And so it's really about taking accountability, taking responsibility for your life, for my life, for my actions, for, you know, and even now and how we're raising our kids and not to, you know, and really being aware of these issues, being really aware of sexual abuse, how it happens, you know, all those things to trust your gut, like the it, the percent it's in the 90 percentile of you know offenders are people we know so if that's horrific horrific it is horrific but if it is people we know then the other the flip side of that is that we're probably going to get a sense for that too so to right. trust our gut yeah. you know what i mean and even if it is family even if it is the uncle even if it is a friend, a good friend of the family, a good friend of a friend, you know, like all of those things. And so to really just, yeah, trust our gut. And so, so what are some of the, and you may have this in the book. I haven't got the book yet because it was only launched on December 7th. So yeah. um, what are some of those early warning signs that mothers with daughters in particular can look out for? And what do you recommend are the first two or three steps after realizing or feeling or sensing that something isn't right? It's not going to end well unless action is taken. Like, how do we recognize it? I think, you know, some of it is to just being proactive, you know, like, you know, letting, letting our kids go for sleepovers and letting, you know, things like that. Like, you know, sometimes I like, is, is that always really necessary? Do we have to always let our kids go for sleepovers? Do we have to always, you know, like just little things like that, right? Like how well do we know these people, you know, cause we're always afraid of looking like, you know, a weirdo, moms, right? <laughs> right? Or yeah, or just really overprotective, or being labeled, like we're afraid sometimes, I think, as people, individuals, parents, whatever. To, but but I don't, I don't know that that's and that's, I'm not saying that even to just, you know, to start living out of fear, because that's not good either. And that's not what I'm saying, or where I want people to get to, but just being aware, just yeah, being be aware. conscious. Be, a be conscious. Parent. Yeah. Be mindful of it. Yeah. Trust your gut, you know, yeah. and even in having these conversations with our kids too, right. At an early age, like letting them know that no one touches you, like having those conversations. If someone makes you feel uncomfortable, it's okay to say so. Yeah. Tell yeah. Me. So with, um, with your, you know, BA in counseling psychology, which probably helps as well with um, you know, understanding and appreciating some of these deviant behaviors. Um, what is the right age to be having a conversation with your with your child about these potential, you know, possibilities? I think you know, as early. I mean, every child is different, right? And yeah. that's where the mom would kind of step in and decide for herself, kind of thing. Yeah. But you know, depending. I mean, there our kids get exploratory at early ages, right? Mm -hmm. Two, three, four, five. Like, I mean, we talk, you know, even at we're bathing our kids as mothers, right? And then it starts to get to a point where they 
they want to start bathing themselves, things like that. Like when they start to get to those ages where they're noticing things, they're even starting to understand and notice more themselves. What's that? You know, how come, you know, how come my sister's part looks different than my part or what, you know, when you're starting to teach your kids, like, actually that's a vagina, this is a penis, like, Mm -hmm. you know, all of those things, not having little nicknames for our, for our anatomy, things like that, right? Like calling it what it is, you know, all of that stuff. So I think even as we're getting into those conversations with our kids, then we can start having other conversations, you know, just gradually, slowly over time, you know, as, as they are growing and exploring as well, we can grow and explore with them in our conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I think it just is, you know, it's keeping those lines of communication open is absolutely key. And then again, trusting your gut, trusting your gut. So when you think about your own personal situation and your daughter's um, situations, Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that they could have physically done, like that could have been either set up in the home or, um, you know, what, what tips, what advice, guidance can you share for things that maybe, you know, mothers might not necessarily think of? Because if you haven't experienced it, I mean, it's so mind blowing that you wouldn't mm-hmm. you wouldn't even think that you mm-hmm. know this might be something to put in place as a preventative measure. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, first of all, Yvonne, like, like, I never expected. It's like, it's like, you know, you do, it's like you, ha- we have a house, right? And we do everything we can to um, keep our home safe, right. right? We get really good locks, we get really good deadbolts, maybe we have a security system, like we do every we have all everything has a lock all the way, we do everything to keep any potential harm from the outside world coming into our home, right? Burglars, everything. We try to, you know, it's our home. It's safe. This is the problem with when the the sexual abuse and this kind of family violence and domestic violence happens right within the house. It's like, you're literally living with the enemy. You're living with the burglar. Sometimes you might not even know that. Like in my case, I never would have suspected in a hundred years that, my husband was the threat. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, in speaking to that, yes, now, obviously, I can look back and see that there are signs. I've also had multiple conversations with other families since coming forth where same thing, the perpetrator was in the home, right? And when I look back now, I can see, yeah, there were signs. Um, I just didn't know that those signs would lead to him molesting my daughter. Okay. Um, And then some of those signs were, you know, he um, didn't want to have anything to do with me sexually. Mm. So we really had very little to no sex life. That's a flag. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, Yeah. Yeah, like I knew he had um, an issue with pornography. Um, that's another flag. Yep. You know, um, things like that. Uh, he had a drinking problem. That's another flag. Yep. Um, so just, you know, he, when I would try to, you know, make, make advances um, you know, to have, to make love, to have intercourse, just to have some intimacy with him. Um, he would, you know, deflect sometimes using humor. He would deflect sometimes in with irritation saying that there was, you know, something wrong with me, you know, he was tired, he's working so much, or he would deflect saying, you know, like you're a nympho, like he would try to make me feel bad about myself and bad about my sexuality, uh, things like that. And then, like I said, with the pornography, um, because even the the pornography started to uh, increase uh, and and then his pornography even started to get 
<clears throat> like his, he started to go after younger and younger, um, like the girls in, in the, in the porn started, I noticed that they started to get younger and younger. Right. Um, I never seen any child pornography per se, but, um, or I, I should say child abuse, because really it's not even porn, it's child abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, but just that portrayal of younger, younger girls. Right. And, you know, I tried to address those issues with him too and stuff like that, but I just never, I never put the two together that those issues could lead to him seeking, um, you know, like that pedophilia behavior. I never put it together um, until it was too late. And so, but those are, those are flags. Like that's, those are serious issues, you know, not, not to be taken lightly. Yeah. So, so as mothers who um, want to protect their children, um, you know, certainly there are some flags that we can watch for. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of your own experience and what you've learned talking with other parents, other mothers about what to do next, Mm -hmm. as you said, you know, initially it was like, I can't believe that this has even happened. And yet through, you know, counseling and church and faith, et cetera, there was this desire to carry on with the family unit. So, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what, would you recommend that women do um, that could be helpful in the preventative? And then secondly, if something like that were to happen, what is the next immediate step that has to happen in order to try to break the cycle of this? Okay, first of all, I just I just remembered one thing that I want to mention to that I forgot in the what to look for. Um, yeah. Another thing that was really key when I look back to, and I've heard this from other women too, is the father, stepfather, because this can happen even with Mm -hmm. your own biological children, um, is he'll make inappropriate um, comments to the child. Um, So inappropriate sexual comments he'll make, um, you know, like, and it might seem like little playful gestures. Mm-hmm. But it's inappropriate. Um, like I, you know, for an example, little things like, you know, when maybe your daughter is starting to get a little bit older, you know, eight, nine, ten, sometimes girls can start to develop at an earlier age. And right. he'll make inappropriate comments that are, you know, would obviously make her feel uncomfortable, embarrassed, things like that. Like it, it's those things are inappropriate or, mm-hmm. you know, coming in you know, I want you to sit on daddy's lap and just things that, and you'll, you'll feel it. Like as a mother, you'll feel it in your gut. Like that seems inappropriate. Yeah. Why? You know what I mean? Yeah. And then because our brains, we don't want to go there and think that because we think what the hell's wrong with me for thinking this, but nothing's actually wrong with you. That's inappropriate. And you just, you put all of those things together and you know what I mean? Um, so those are some of the, some of the signs. Sometimes it can be out and out blatant things that you can catch. Yeah. You know what I mean? So um, what do you do about that? Yeah. Um, so confront right okay. away. Um, and depending on what exactly you have say caught or found mm-hmm. out, um, but it, you, an intervention needs to happen absolutely immediately immediately and honestly too if you if if you're in the church you know and you're have a faith or something like that and if they're not going to take the appropriate steps immediately to intervene and to come alongside you then you need to find someone that will mm-hmm. and if sexual abuse has happened the police need to be called immediately right. like i there you know, I'll always regret not calling the police the first time. Always. Well, I think I think we know what, you know, it's always easier, isn't it, Venetia, to have yeah. hindsight, right? Yeah. And that's yeah. why I, I share these stories with as many listeners as possible, 
because it is about understanding, you know, where was the rise from tragedy to triumph and what can we learn from it? And, Mm -hmm. you know, the reason that you started the Terminator Foundation, you know, tell me a little bit about that story and and what you've learned along the way there. Well, that that also came um, because with this kind of trauma, obviously, right, we were all impacted myself and all my four kids were impacted by this. Uh, Yeah, because we, you know, we ended up plunging into poverty the kids and I were almost homeless um it was it was really bad and so my second oldest daughter um ended up um using drugs became addicted and that's a whole other story but um she ended up on the street addicted to heroin fentanyl um I and I really thought I was gonna lose her like I thought for sure she was gonna overdose and die and um And so it was through that process with her and all this shame, all the stigma associated with that, how she was treated. Um, It was during that, that that's where the Terminator Foundation started um, was because I didn't want other families to go through what we were going through. And I knew that it was a way bigger issue than what was you know, than, than what people thought. And so that's where, when I started Terminator was um, just so people wouldn't know that they were alone, like families wouldn't, would know that they're not alone, so that we could also start being more proactive, you know, earlier intervention, earlier prevention, you know, so that we don't have to wait. I mean, we have a big homeless problem here in Canada, um, I'm sure it's this, you know, the same in a lot of other places around the world too, right? Where we're seeing way too many youth and young adults on the street, homeless. You know, we have an opioid crisis. We have an addiction crisis. We had these crises before COVID and it's, it's way worse now, you know, than it ever was before. And so, yeah, so I so I started Terminator just as a way to, um, and we use sport. So we use, you know, the triathlon, we use the sport of triathlon to try to help strengthen, you know, our, we call them athletes, um, help strengthen their recovery, help them to recover, help them to get, you know, to, you know, put together some abstinence, um, whatever it is that they're addicted to, it doesn't matter. And so we'll work with anyone, whether they're 24 hours sober or two weeks sober, or it doesn't matter. And so we train them to do triathlons as a part of their recovery. And so after I, I started that right when it was the worst with Eden, she was out on the street and um, she later on, um, she's actually coming up on five years uh, clean and sober here in January that uh, January 15th will be five years that she's that she's uh, been in recovery which is an absolute miracle um, because well done, I, Eden. well done yeah yeah it's a and she ended up training with us in Terminator she was one of you know one of our athletes that went through our program and you know she completed a sprint distance triathlon and this was 6 months after using fentanyl and heroin intravenously like and being homeless like living on the street you know and so it just it pushes them you know just like the addiction is so relentless mm-hmm. you know and 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 you know some of these kids and youth and adults like they go to great lengths you know it takes them to places that they never thought possible like if you talk to my daughter she'll tell you she crossed lines she never thought she would ever cross in her life and so the reason why we use the triathlon is because it is so it can feel so insurmountable you know what I mean but when, when we get them training and they're doing it and they, they see themselves doing it, it, it just shows them what is possible, what Mm -hmm. they're capable of, 
you know, so it really parallels. Yeah, you were way over here. You know what I mean? Down and out. Never thought in a million years you could ever recover again. And then we take them and then now here they are doing a freaking triathlon. You know, so how did and you it- make that connection, Venetia, between um, what could happen with addiction and homelessness and leveraging the power of sport? How did that come about? Well, because I I ended up doing one myself. And so that's when it, you know, because it even blew my own, it even blew my own mind. Like I'm in long-term recovery from alcoholism. And, and it was when I was at my lowest time in my life, when my daughter was on the street, I didn't know if she was dead or alive. Like every day, I didn't know is today going to be the day I get the call, you know, and I, you know, I, I, end, yeah, I ended up signing up for this half Ironman, the 70.3 Ironman here in Calgary. And, and three and a half months later, I did, I did it. And I, I couldn't swim when I started, I couldn't swim. I didn't have a bike. All I had was my runners. Cause I was a runner and, and it just, it, it, uh, it literally, it was, it felt like I was born again, again, Hmm. it revolutionized my life. It transformed my life. And the way I even thought about myself, you know, it just, it, it blew the, you know, the ceiling off of my own belief that I had for myself. It was like, Venetia, you can only go this far. Like, this is all you've got. This is all you are. And when I started training for that triathlon and I started to learn to swim and I, I got a bike and I started to put it all to, and I could, I seen myself morphing into this other person I didn't even know was inside of me, you know, and it was like, holy crap, like, if I can do this, What's you know what possible? I mean, what else can I do, yeah. right? And And yeah. that's when I really... It was like God just totally used that experience to show me, you know, just how much I can do. And so I've taken that. And that's even where everything comes from now. It's just that place because I never should have survived my childhood. I never should have, like, I wanted to die when you know, it got so bad after everything with my marriage, my kids and I plunged into poverty. My drinking was out of control. I couldn't make ends meet. I couldn't work enough. It was hell. Like it was, and I just wanted, like, is this actually my life? Like, you know what I mean? I wanted to die. And then I finally, you know, I got sober and I started crawling out of hell. And then only you know I just get out of hell and then I start watching my daughter eat and go down the same path and I'm like is this ever gonna end is this is this ever gonna be over like and then I took off after her to go find her and bring her back and she ends up on the street and and then I in the middle of all this craziness I decide I'm gonna do a half iron man but that half iron that half Ironman saved my life. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it blew every paradigm. It blew my belief system. It blew everything off my life. Yeah. And that's when I really, you know, this, this ferociousness, this fierce, you know, not letting anything hold me back anymore or anyone else back for that matter. It was during that time that I realized, you know what? We're not hopeless. I don't care what you've been through. I care what you've been through, but I don't, I don't, whatever it is that you've been through, we can get through it. If you're above ground, we can make it. If we're above ground, we can recover. We can recover from sexual abuse. We can recover from domestic violence. We can recover from addiction. We can recover from that divorce. We can recover from, you know, mental health issues. We can recover. We can recover. Whatever it is, we can get through it. There's hope. There's hope. There's hope. There's hope. 
And so that's what that taught me. That's what that gave me. And so, and then that's Powerful. even what, yeah, what gave me the courage and the strength and to, you know, write the book and to step into my story and to embrace my story and embrace all the ugly parts of it too. And just say, yeah, this is what it was. This is where we came from, wow. you know, but this is where, what it looks now. And that's even now with my girls and, and in raising their kids. And, you know, this is the legacy that I want to leave. Like we're, don't be afraid to come face to face with this stuff in your life. Don't be afraid. You know, I tell my girls that, and, you know, you're, we're raising warriors here. We're raising these young people. I, I don't want this in our lives anymore. Like, and the only way that we're going to do that is you have to face your own demons. Right. So I tell my girls, you have to face it head on. You have to face it now. You know, you don't like the way that something is going, then change it. You change it. You can't wait for it to change. You need to change it. You I, need to I, be different. I Earlier on when you were talking and I wrote down, you know, Gandhi, right? <laughs> you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. And you took that on. And now um, you're expanding that in the work that you do. Powerful, powerful work and spreading that continued message. Exactly. If you don't like something, do something about it. Like, don't mm -hmm. wait for someone else. Mm -hmm. It is your opportunity to step into your greatest challenge. Mm -hmm. And when you come out the other side, you will be unrecognizable. And that's okay. Unrecognizable in a good way, just as uh, Venetia has. And so who is the book really written for? And what's the, the one single biggest message you want people to take away from this interview today? Um, the, honestly, the book is for anyone that needs hope, anyone that, you know, yeah. And, um, and I, I think, you know, the, the message I hope that ever, if I could leave with everyone is just that, honestly, if we're, if we're not dead, there's hope. Yeah. If, like truly, truly. There is, and and to just not give up, just to keep moving forward, right. you know, yeah. How many? And tell you your story, like tell your story. <clears throat> tell you know? your story. Another tell powerful. your story. Yeah. Yes. Powerful, powerful. Um, how many young kids do you think, and and obviously that then impacts their parents and families. But how many people do you think the Terminator Foundation work um, has already touched? Do you have any idea? Do you capture those stats at all? Or uh, I'd say in the hundreds, like between everything that we do, yeah. the hundreds, yeah. maybe even the thousands. I don't know, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this kind of work is so, so powerful, Venetia, because it has ripples. And I think half the time we don't even realize what those ripples are. Yeah, um, you're I, probably, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. You know? I mean, yeah. I, um, I know of Reset because, um, you know, one of the things that I chose to do when I wrote my best-selling book, Words, Women and Wisdom, The Modern Art of Confident Conversations, was to donate one for every copy, physical copy of the book purchased to a women's shelter foundation or not-for-profit. So, you know, stacks of 10, typically not one-on-one, -on -one, <laughs> um, go out to places like the YWCA, um, to... Um, the you know the organizations organizations like reset and making changes and um you know to monica's you know foundation the nest foundation and you know there's been hundreds of uh, of books that have been given away and mm -hmm. and and the other day well actually a couple of months ago now i had someone pop up on facebook and they said oh you're yvonne silver you're the author of words women and wisdom I'm like yeah <laughs> she says that book was on my nightstand when i was in the shelter and now wow. I am about to launch my first book. I've got my e-course coming out and things have really turned around. And I thought, wow, like, I don't know how much of an impact or an influence my book had on her, but just the fact that she mentioned it, that she even remembered and her turnaround yeah. story was so powerful. That mm -hmm. just really touched me because we mm -hmm. just never know. Like one, one person can make this massive ripple um, totally. listening yeah. to this interview will touch so many people and make a massive ripple your book will make a massive 
ripple. And so I thank you for sharing your insights. Um, powerful, powerful work. One of the things that um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention in my work, primarily I'm working as a um, executive coach working to teach women how to flourish in business by having more confident conversations. A lot of times that's to do with sales mastery. Often it's getting clear in what their purpose is mm-hmm. and why that connects to the work that they want to do, why they're so passionate about it, how to articulate that in language that other people get right away, and then also how to monetize that. Because if we have you know, a choice, right? We can either have money or not have money. Um, you know, making choices is a lot easier when you have the resources to do it. To be able to step out of a marriage where you know that something is not right that's going on takes resources. And it's a lot easier to do when you're not thrown into poverty, obviously. So I want to encourage anyone who's listening, if, you know, I'm not, um, I don't really do divorce coaching, but what I do do is help women to find their voice so that they can step up, step out, be brave. Um, some of my clients are you know, writing TED Talks, hosting women's retreats, writing books and launching them. I mean, this is the kind of work that I'm passionate about doing. So if you feel like you need some support in this area, feel free to reach out to me. You can reach out through my website, yvonnesilver.com, Y-V-O-N-N-E, S-I-L-V-E-R, YvonneSilver.com. I encourage you to pick up a copy of Words, Women and Wisdom, The Modern Art of Confident Conversations, because every one of the 40 words and word concepts in the book has an action item segment afterwards. So you learn about it. It's now on your awareness, as Vanisha said, you've got to be aware, first of all, Mm -hmm. that something needs to shift. And then the action items give you tips on how to step into making change and sometimes it's a simple thing you know should to could you know you should do this or has that tone of obligation to it and you know you should do this you know the parental finger um whereas if you change that to could it's this air of possibility of lightness of openness it's options it's choice and just to remind all of our listeners as Venetia said so eloquently you know we always have a choice we always have a choice, but, but you as the individual have to know and trust that there is something greater at play here. And even though it might seem like you're stepping off the precipice, you know, your wings will grow on the way down. And trusting in that fact that the world is designed to be creative and supportive and to help everybody find their joy, that's just the way the universe is designed, it will happen. And recognizing where that tragedy to triumph is, is purposeful for this show. It's really about words, women and wisdom. And that's why it's, it's called the Words, Women and Wisdom show. It's about sharing insights, sharing lessons, sharing journeys that are powerful, where there's a way to use this awareness to educate, to inspire and to motivate you into action. So, Venetia, if you wanted to leave the audience with something, I know sometimes some of my guests bring, uh, you know, like a free gift. Um, I know that you're just you know, in the throes of your book launch right now. What would you like to offer up for the audience? Is this something um, to keep in touch with you or where to get your book or what would you like? Yeah, to no, absolutely. Um, so I have my website, VenetiaBriel.com. And okay. so on there, um, we're actually just thinking of uh, hosting um, uh, sort of like a two for one. And so I do coaching counseling as well. And so my uh, the link to book a call is on there. And if you um, mention in the message that you listened to this interview and just message and let me know about that you want to get in on the the two for one. So two two calls, uh, two coaching counseling calls for one. Then Great. I'll uh, respond and get that back. So excellent, excellent, yeah, thank you. very generous. So Venetia V A N I S H Bro B R E A U L T dot com is the website. If you yeah, want it's to Venetia with an A. And Vanisha, yes, with an A, not a B. <laughs> so if you want to keep in touch with her, you can find her 
um, Instagram.com, Venetia Bro, Twitter.com, Venetia Bro, Media Highlights at website, VenetiaBro.com slash media uh, slash hashtag media, and also on LinkedIn as well. So I invite you to keep in touch. Join me if you would like. If you want to step into becoming a more conscious leader, you can step into moving up from a solopreneur to a CEO by joining me on January 19th. And details of that are on my website as well, um, YvonneSilva.com. Thank you for joining me today, Venetia. Thanks for having me. Uh, Herb exploration. And I'm so glad that you have the strength to carry on and do this powerful work. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful day. Bye for now, everybody.